Talk to me, Goose. Sing me a song. I love the way you ignore me. Hold on. Let me shut down all this other... I'm, I'm trying to deploy spring music, and it's not working. What? He's learning. He's learning. He's I'm learning. Baby steps. Baby yeah, steps. baby steps. Spring music's fun. It's old school. It is old school, but that's where I need to start, man. I am totally, uh, totally, I guess, infantile in that world. It's a whole new layer, man. Close it. Close it out, So I'm curious, especially as I see it kind of re-emerging again in a different light. Is it like a refocus is there value from it so i didn't want to ask a too loaded question but I, i'm you can definitely ask me about java um, i know have, you know a lot so that's why i was curious we have this we have this project called spring boot uh-huh. um which is is basically like it takes the universe of things you need to do to be productive in java and refines it down to just like oh you want to write a little rest end controller you want to write a little rest service and that's that's all you start with and it's really easy um the thing about languages if i'll just say this is there's it's really hard to get them right, and the ecosystem around them takes a long time to build up. So when you see these new languages that appeal to like highly evented mobile APIs, like you know, the old pattern was just to take a second here. The old pattern was you didn't change anything of your core, and then you put a little API in the front of all your backend for for your legacy. And what we're doing is we're like, hey, what if we gave you Spring Boot and you could actually change that core Java world? And you could actually have new capability, not just put a little mobile HTML app in front of it. That's not just putting a new front end on the back end they already had. That's a that's a new end to end business capability, and that's all being done with Spring Boot. That's awesome. Cool. Well, we're gonna we're gonna back into this thing. We we started this thing out by asking uh, uh, our guest here, James, if we could ask a specific question, and he just waxed poetically for two minutes. So that's their that's your pre intro to who's going to be talking today. So Brent, why don't you fire it off, man? <laughs> All right. Awesome. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hot Owl. Uh, this is episode number 34. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Brent Piatti, and with me? Brian Carpenter. All right, sir. So let's kick this off. We already heard the voice of our guests, but just so you guys know, the goal of our show is to educate you on the, the ever-changing world of cloud-native enterprises, cloud-native applications, and then the whole digital business landscape. So we've heard on past episodes, and we keep hearing that software is eating the world, and we know that it has officially eaten the world. Uh, and, and those that don't have an appetite for this, um, for this change are slowly dying. So with us, we have uh, none other than James Waters from Pivotal uh, to walk us through this transformation and, and how we can stay afloat um, you know, as things are progressing. So James, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. And uh you know, just got back from doing uh, five of six weeks on the road dealing with customers and customer projects to make sure we're building the right thing um, and make sure the arrows are hitting its target. So uh, plenty of plenty of fresh meat to talk about here this morning. So it's, it's fun to connect. Awesome. Well, we're glad that we can have you, especially after uh, being gone for so long. I'm sure that uh, your family and friends are missing you. But uh, we get a little bit of a, an hour with you and, and we're happy to have you. So James, tell us, uh, tell us what you do and, and, uh, and why you do it. Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, I'm the SVP of product for Pivotal, so I'm responsible for uh, what we build and how successful it is at uh, Pivotal. And uh, I've been working on Cloud Foundry since 2010, um, when it was a whiteboard and five people at VMware. Uh, 
And so uh, my uh, my job track has basically been to be the most stubborn member of the Cloud Foundry original team. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in these big corporate projects, they kind of have their slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, if you will. And so there's been uh, some people come and go from the project. And then we were, you know, Paul Moritz spun us out to be our own company at Pivotal. Um, and that's where we really have taken off uh, kind of as an independent entity. And we've only really been in, in market for two years, um, two and a half years now. Uh, but we started to set some records uh, for open source product growth. So we're, we're in kind of a unique spot. Uh, so that's what I do every day is uh, make sure we're building the right thing and uh, make sure customers are enjoying it. Um, and it's a fascinating time in the market because when we started the project, things were all about take costs out, consolidation, do the same thing for cheaper, right? It's kind of like the peak of the virtualization journey, you know, like, you know, in the data center. And today, a lot of people are like, oh, do we go bimodal? How do we do cloud native? I got this CMO bang on me. We got to do new interesting things. So it's, uh, it's kind of cool that the project was well aligned to the future uh, in terms of what the demand was coming. And that's really been the inflection of the last year and a half where people have said, oh, that is the number one priority for me. Absolutely. Very cool. So speaking of Cloud Foundry, uh, we do a segment every week called This Week in Tech History. And uh, in April of 1892, General Electric is founded. So um, you guys probably are very familiar with, with GE and Predix and the fact that uh, they've got a relationship with the Cloud Foundry Foundation um, and running that whole thing. So, James, have you worked with, with GE at all on Predix and, and what's, kind of, uh, what, what's, what's going on there? So Predix is a really interesting strategy uh, by Jeff Immelt out at uh, GE. So GE is one of these amazing places, and they're, they're so successful, nearly a $300 billion, you know, I don't check their market cap every day, but let's just call it in the neighborhood of a $300 billion industrial company um, in the United States. And they've got you know uh, tens of business units, each of which could be a Fortune 500 company, right? So each of them are at scale. Each of them, um, as this era of you know connected devices, analytics, cloud um, interfaces for uh, consumers, uh, for users of, of machinery come come into place. Each of them could have gone off and built their own platform. And so Jeff's idea was, I'm going to form GE Digital and build a division that builds the platform for all of GE. So I'm going to bring all of the business units together under one umbrella for this new platform um, for the way they make the transition from being uh, pure material and services into being you know, kind of digital services uh, in the marketplace. And so we've been working with GE Predix for about two and a half years. Um, as part of that, they invested, uh, they own about 10% of Pivotal, um, so it's a, it's a material relationship. And, uh, you know, it's really cool to see companies, as I was mentioning in the intro, the thing that's changed is that's not just a cost takeout plan for existing apps. Like, that's not GE saying, hey, we've got to run our HR system cheaper on uh, cheaper hardware. That's ML saying, like, we have to be the world's best at uh, predictive analytics for our wind turbines and connected analytics for our wind turbines, or we we're going to be inter we're going to have an Uber moment where someone's going to be better at that interstitial layer uh, between the device and the consumer or the user. 
Uh, so it's been cool. Yeah, and it's uh, it's really cool. To, we were just joking about it the other day, right? The commercial um, where you know they basically they're on the, at the Super Bowl advertising about dudes going to develop at GE, and his friends are making fun of him, going, "Oh, you're going to drive trains, you know? Oh, you're going to shovel coal." And it really the the idea that they're disrupting internally and the 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 level at which they're doing it for a company that's uh, 130 years old, or I can't do math, but whatever, it's too early for that. Um, that's pretty awesome. It's a good story. So. Yeah, I was actually I was actually at the Super Bowl with Vince Campisi, who's uh, one of the pr- uh, primary leaders of uh, of GE uh, <laughs> Predix, and uh, the reason was that Microsoft was nice enough to take us. And that's the other thing about about um, Predix is it's being built to run on any cloud, and so it's it's giving Cloud Foundry a great relationship with all of the major cloud providers as well. Yeah, and that's so, awesome. So yeah. tell us, is there, I mean, is there a relationship? I understand there's this whole thing about Cloud Foundry and then there's Pivotal and then there's Pivotal's lab, Pivotal Labs, sorry. And so can you break out really quickly what the difference is between those different entities? Yeah, I mean, uh, I call uh, Pivotal kind of a hadron collider of, uh, of business strategy. And so uh, it was pretty cool, which is you had these independently successful entities. Uh, Cloud Foundry was emerging, so it was kind of the baby of the group. It was brand new, but also the big new bet. Um, the Spring Group was there, uh, had been acquired by Paul Moritz, the most successful Java framework in the world. Um, and then Pivotal Labs had been uh, absolutely a uh, coveted boutique uh, agile consultancy XP programming consultancy for startups in Silicon Valley and a few other locations. Um, and the the cool thing that uh, Joe Tucci and Paul Moritz did is they brought together this talent and they said, hey, as the world turns over now to more of a cloud-native way of operating, we think that a modern development practice, um, a rejuvenated modern development pl- framework, and then a new modern development platform could be kind of catalytic to each other. Um, and that's resulted in really amazing things where you have unfair advantages over like a single trick startup where a company will go like, how do we transform with Pivotal? So how do we develop completely like labs? How do we build everything in Spring Boot, this hot new microservices cloud native Java technology we built at Pivotal with Spring? Spring, And then, oh my gosh, the experience we get using Cloud Foundry as a platform versus raw infrastructure and the economics of running those apps are incredible. We could be a completely different kind of company if we absorbed all three of these at once. And then we actually had to build, because of that, something called our transformation practice, which is like, hey, if you want to swallow that elephant and really change your whole company, how do you do that? That's, and that's pretty cool, right? And so we're seeing you guys help these enterprises. Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, as you, as they were, I mean, those are, that's pretty big vision from those guys, right? I mean, Tucci and Moritz, and especially considering they've got a lot of a lot more gray than I do. Um, <laughs> you know, when you have no hair, it's hard to have gray hair. But um, so as these enterprises start to go to like cloud native and they do those kind of things, and you're helping them, what is your view of these enterprises? What should they be doing that's different than what they're doing today? What helps them get to that point? You know, I think the first thing that Pivotal helps people with is benchmarking, and so when you run an app on you know, where a lot of our customers are right now, you know, because we've been in the market for a little, we've had a lot of success, is they've got, say, 1,000 or 2,000 containers worth of apps running on our platform. Um, a nice thing about Cloud Foundry is you don't even really know it's a container or not. Like, you don't have to learn containers to use Cloud Foundry. It's all just, that's just how we've done it for you. You know, it's, it's Uber. It's not a bag of parts, if that makes sense. 
Uh, you have no idea what the transmission on your Uber is, but boy, you got there. It's, you're happy. Um, but they get to this point where they're running 2,000, what we might say, application instances. And that's kind of a first hurdle of, wow, this thing's really working. And there's a customer up in the Northeast that's running 2,000 app instances. And I was just there. And they said, look, we got two people operating it, but it's only a quarter of their time. So they're running all of these. And then anyone can come in and just start running apps on that same Cloud Foundry instance. And it doesn't, it's not like you have incremental cost. I mean, the old way of doing IT was that you're like, I mean, when I used to work at Sun Microsystems, like back in the talk about computer history, right? Um, you know, back when uh, in the 1800s at Sun Microsystems, um, the, the whole thing was you would buy a server for each app. Right, like, and then of course, then the VMware paradigm came out, but people still kind of use like one VM or a set of VMs in a static way, and they set the entire thing up. So every time you went to do a new project, you kind of incurred a, a fixed unit new cost. Right, it was like this. I call it like the linear scale problem. Like every new project, linear scale more in cost. And what happens that our, the companies that are successfully using CF is they realize they've broken that, and they have a fixed cost for running the platform. And then they can put as many apps as they want on it. And once they get to about 2,000, this light comes on and they go, holy cow, these things don't go down. They're resilient. There's an incredible developer experience. And this is a completely different economics than I've ever had for doing new things. And that actually challenges those companies to go like, oh, wow, who, what, what else could we do? You know what I mean? Because there's always like in big enterprises this, who wants to go get the $10 million to do the new project problem that keeps things from being great? And I think we've started to change that for these enterprises. And I've seen CIOs get the math. And they're like, this is a completely new set of math uh, that we can, we can use now. So, James, you had mentioned uh, economics. Like, so when, when I think of Cloud Foundry, I think of uh, agility, um, you know, quicker time to market with, uh, you know, microservices and cloud native applications. But you specifically talked about uh, the economics, and and that's a, a newer side. So help me understand, and you know, help us understand what it is about Cloud Foundry that makes it, you know, so economical. Right? I, I did read a blog post that you did back in 2013 about um, running CF, you know, uh, versus doing like AWS EC2 instances and things like that. So kind of <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, that was a. That was a post I did before Docker was famous. Like if you if you look at that, I was talking about the economics of containers before containers were popular. But I'm just an old man like that. Um, <clears throat> the uh, I mean, CF has been using containers forever, even before it was kind of cool. The um, the thing I'd say is it's really about scalable, easy to access primitives, and so you get different facets of that. If it's if you have a scalable primitive and an easy-to-access primitive, you can make it cheaper to run. You can make it easier to access. You can make it faster to update. Like It's essentially a more manageable in all those dimensions. And so you can look at CF and you can say, oh, wow, that's a much better developer experience. It's so fast. I pushed an app and it just ran. You can say, oh, wow, this is, this is great. I've now got cloud-native tools like Netflix OSS to rapidly bind that app I pushed through Eureka to all these other services that I've built. But then you can also say, you know, Netflix, if you look at them, they don't have a giant operations team. They've got a giant dev team. And so the final attribute of these cloud-native apps is you build them for resiliency and scalability from the get-go, 
which means that actually the cost of running them is really low. Um, and those are all facets of cloud native. And I think kind of the pure agility, you can do cool new things argument's great. And that's what gets us going in accounts. And we go win cool new apps at Ford. We built Ford Paz, their new connected car app, as an example. But then they look at like, that's what I was talking about, that event horizon of like, oh, wow, now they have 2,000 of those little containers running. And they realize it doesn't cost them much. Then it's like the second phase. Like now you're going to grad school in Cloud Foundry and you're going like, oh, okay. This actually is not only faster, it's also more economical. And, and that's when we kind of get, and that's when I started talking about the transformation practice. People go like, I could actually demand that my organization start to completely change the way they work. And it's uh, one of the things that I thought was really unique about that uh, transformation practice is it really is designed to kind of uh, get in and get out versus the traditional model, especially with services, where you engage for a very long time. And that's really the goal is to engage for forever and not disengage. Uh, and I think it's the opposite for your service. Yeah, I mean, uh, a guy, I haven't, a person I haven't mentioned yet, Rob Mee, who's our CEO and the creator and founder of Pivotal Labs, um, one of the things that he championed and pioneered was uh, pair programming with customers. And the reason was, is the idea was after enough, like say a six-month immersion or a three to six-month or one year, whatever's right for the customer, whoever leaves that pair can go back to their enterprise or back to another team and then lead the next pair. And he kind of calls it starter dough, which is like, hey, you, you start with the, you get the 10 people that are able to pair program and do XP and lean product development effectively together. Then they go off and they infect 10 more people about how to do that. And that's more of our attitude than, hey, we just want to be your outsourcer and we're going to get cheaper and cheaper people every year. In fact, Pivotal Labs is a, is a relatively high-end boutique um, you know, uh, at the top of the rack rate. I mean, if you compare us to offshore costs, it's not even comparable. But we're sold out every single quarter in Pivotal Labs because people want that modern development experience. They want to be able to drop a story in on Monday and see the results on Friday versus this waterfall approach that they usually had. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to watch the confluence of all these things. So I've seen you, uh, from my perspective, I've been following you on Twitter for, uh, since I started just before EMC, and I've seen you, I, in my pers again, my perspective, get a little louder over the last year, like much more verbose. And I don't know if you just got that much more excited about Twitter all of a sudden, but what it really <laughs> feels like is you're really seeing, I guess, the, the avalanche get larger and the, the momentum get larger and you're, um, you're pretty excited about it. So is it really just that you found your Twitter app or is it because there's something else going on from your perspective? Oh man, Twitter's something I've never gotten quite right. You know, I, I when I first started on Twitter, I was there just to hang out with Chris Hoff, um, and uh, we would just like hang out. And Twitter was this tiny world, and I had like 300 followers. Uh, we all just talked about cloud every day. It was like a bar, you know. It was like norm, um, and we all had a lot of fun. And it wasn't in the public eye very much. I mean, it was like a bar, and then gosh darn it, um, cloud took off and all these people I don't know then started following me and now it's up in the thousands and high thousands and it's harder to know how to, how to hang out on Twitter anymore. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it's like, it's not like that bar vibe anymore and so I've just more started using Twitter as whatever I'm thinking about at work almost as much as to communicate with people at Pivotal 
you know, I, I really stopped using Twitter as a way of trying to like hang out with my friends. And it's more of like what I'm going through that day at work and what I'm seeing in the market. And they're almost notes to myself. So if you see my Twitter, it's more of me saying, here's what I think the future is going to be. I'm going to make a bet. I'm going to put myself on the line and say it. And then I'm going to go make it so. Um, and so Twitter is sort of my own like sort of personal scorecard in a sense. And I get fired up like when those bets are true. <laughs> so and, anyway, Yeah, and I think that's what I've been seeing, right? Is like you going, man, you know, I said this and this is what's happening. And it's really, it's kind of, it's almost the it's all happening moment. It seems to be happening more and more for you. So it's kind of interesting to watch and obviously learn from. Well, you know, I appreciate the feedback and it's, it's much harder to use Twitter in an era where there's more people watching and caring and my job's more senior now than when it was like cloud beers a couple of years ago. Yeah. So you can still, you can still be immature. It's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> oh, uh, that's the way we do it. Right. Just put the, just put the disclaimer at the bottom. that says it's yeah. not your company's opinion. Oh, so, yeah. so in, in, we talk about all these different things, right? You've mentioned cloud foundry and kind of the cloudfoundry.org and that, uh, that essentially that's a, its own body now and pivotal and pivotal cloud foundry. Yeah. And then there's Spring and Spring Brute. And it was interesting to learn that they actually kind of all started together. They kind of grew up together at VMware because yeah. from our perspective, they're coming out at different times. So was there, was, is Spring just now getting to the point where it's really, is there something that's amplifying it? Or is it just simply, it was time, it's ready? Or do I just have, have I just not seen it enough? Have I not been doing my job? I, mean, I think the thing is, is that in the old world, you know, the infrastructure people and the apps people didn't hang out. Um, and, right? It was like, I don't know what this server's running. And, uh, and in the old world of Waterfall, the developer was pretty far removed from operations, right? Like they were like, hey, I implemented the spec. I wrote the app. And so it, it was like, you know, your data center people weren't talking to the developers at SAP either, right? It was very removed. And, you know, what's happened is that at Pivotal, we really focused on cloud-native updates to Spring. And so we did a couple projects. I'll, I'll mention three. Uh, the first one was Spring Boot, which was um, inspired by a little project done by Coda Hale called Drop Wizard, which said, hey, in this world of more, you know, everything's a REST microservice, how would I optimize everything I do in the JVM to write a REST microservice, or write, a, write a quick microservice? And so Spring Boot has just blown away everybody because that's so on target with how people want to write apps these days. Um, and that's grown to, I used to tweet that it was exciting, it was 1 million and then 2 million. And now it's just growing so fast, I don't, it's unbelievable. It's 3.6 million downloads a month. Um, and I live the experience because I go out to all these different enterprises. You know, I gave a talk at J.P. Morgan's offsite, uh, you know, near Shore Development Center in Scotland. There's a deck that I put on SlideShare about it. And I asked everyone in the room, like, who's using or knows about Spring Boot or Will? And 95% of the hands went up. So it's like everywhere I go in enterprise development, I'm now seeing Spring Boot, which is just – that's probably one of, the, one of the most incredible things that's come out of Pivotal is like Spring Boot 1 – as how enterprises want to write microservices. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool if you, it, so having gone through that deck, um, it was all about like truly what you would think about enterprise customers, right? Legacy, kind of old school banks. Um, and so I was going to ask the question, but it's probably already answered. Like who's adopting this kind of cloud native enterprise uh, methodology thought process? And it seems like everybody. 
Well, it's it's people writing software, and and there's kind of there's kind of two varieties of that. The one is you got banks, insurance companies, and online companies that are there a while for a while that had always had to write custom software. Like if you look at how an investment bank works, everything about it is custom. Like you don't you don't go buy a currency trading app from an ISV, right? You write your own. Everything is custom written in uh, these big uh, global banks. So it's a huge opportunity. Like if you if you think about um, J.P. Morgan has they're a member of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Um, you know, I I don't say too much about how they use it, but they're a member of the foundation. They've got you know they've got it. They're using it. Um, they have twenty thousand developers. They've I think forty thousand people in IT, but twenty thousand developers working. Wow. So. The opportunity for us, you know, what we always talk about with our, you know, our field organization is find organizations that either have a lot of developers or are trying to hire them. And then the other side of that, you know, banks and, and financial and insurance companies always had a lot of developers because everything's custom. The other side is like industrial companies, car companies, GE, Honeywell, Bosch. These industrial companies that are realizing, like, I just have my Nespresso here, and Nespresso now has a connected Nespresso that I had to buy. Um, you know, they're saying, like, we'd better become software-driven entities, too. And so those are kind of the big constituents that kind of come to Pivotal, the people that had a big history of doing this and want to update themselves. And then also the people that have not done software as a differentiator before. They're going, where do I start? And that's where Labs is an incredible asset. Like, the way we got started with Ford was also Labs because – they didn't have as many of the, the in, in-house folks today. So that's why Spring Boot's important, though, because you know, just to close off on this, we don't just say, here's a platform and here's labs and go pick a language. We're like, here's a fully opinionated way of actually writing these apps, and we can teach you. And so I don't know if you've seen Josh Long on Twitter, but the guy is a Hollywood legend already for us. Like Everywhere he goes and he teaches people Spring Boot, like people ask for his shirt or his autograph. Like that's the level of enthusiasm. Well, send him to EMC World. And I'll make sure to actually get a shirt off of him. Uh, okay, I'll be at, I'll be at EMC World, so yeah. I'll try to bring you one of Josh's shirts. Yeah, you'll have to stop by EMC Radio. We'll put you on for a little bit. We'll see if we can get Josh up there too. Okay. Um, so you know this this is all cool. It makes it makes a lot of sense. But from from my world and what I've seen, especially there's there's been a lot of maybe a couple of years ago there's a lot of negative backlash around. Java and yeah. Java security and the weight of Java on the enterprise. And frankly, everybody's trying to take their UIs and push them off of Java. And here I am, Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, all these other things. It feels like the opposite of what I was feeling just a couple of years ago. Is it a totally different world? Is it leveraging the same people to do it better? What is this about? Yeah, we have a client that, you know, um, they had EOL'd and Sunset Java. They're an uh, online uh, or they're a personal brokerage firm. So uh, you can imagine the customers of that ilk. <clears throat> and the reason they had EOL Java was IBM. Um, and what IBM did, you can look at the, the founder of WebSphere, and he actually says it was like the greatest mistake he ever made in his career because he tried to turn Java into a mainframe. Like he put so many knobs and dials and gears and buttons and settings on WebSphere that it became only usable in a waterfall process. So only uh, an anointed operator of WAS, the, the, the terrifying WAS admin, had to be involved before you could deploy your code or touch it. You had to go through the high priest of WAS and to use it. And that really tainted a lot of people's perceptions and beliefs around Java. At the same time, the JVM 
kept winning. So if you've heard of you know, Hadoop or Cassandra or Kafka or Spark or all of these hot technologies, guess what those all run on is the JVM. So the JVM is this unbelievably proven piece of technology um, that has just never stopped winning important new projects. And so what happened was that Spring Boot came along and it gave you the power of the JVM with the simple expressiveness of a modern experience. And people are like, winner, winner. Um, that's what I want. So those are kind of, that's sort of my perception of like how Java got off the rails. And at that company that had end of life it because of Waz, they're now all in on Spring Boot. And they're like, oh, we get it now. This is the way to go. So that's a complex answer, but it's not as simple as saying Java because there's a whole ecosystem around it. Well, it's interesting. I kind of want to go back to your previous statement about uh, you know specific types of customers having you know called twenty thousand developers developing their own stuff. Um, I've seen this 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 Gartner prediction thrown around in Pivotal uh, blogs, on VMware blogs, on VCE blogs. But basically, um, it was by twenty twenty seventy five percent of application purchases supporting digital businesses will will be build versus buy. Um, so first talk to us about the kind of impact of that statement that it has on the ecosystem from developers to businesses to software companies that, you know, sell their, their COTS software. Well, that's, 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 that's the, that's the killer moment when I talked about the CIO doing the economic cost, what he actually said in that meeting was, why are we buying all of this semi-finished software? Um, so in insurance, you can buy a lot of semi-finished software, which you then have to go in and customize. And you know they were paying you know eight figures a year to customize and maintain some of this semi-finished software. <laughs> and I think his insight was like, wow, you know, with Spring Boot and Cloud Foundry, I could continuously update and modify exactly whatever requirements I have, and I probably do it less than ten million dollars a year. Um, and so I, I think that. I think that you will see a world where people write more software than they buy uh, for digital businesses because the experiences are important um, and they will not offshore as much as my other prediction. And you just have to look at Amazon and Google or any of these people. They don't buy a lot of software, um, maybe some infrastructure software, and they certainly don't offshore much. And the reason is that software is really essential to how they do business. Um, now, when it was not essential, right, when you just needed a website and then a back-end ERP system that basically cleared your books every day, um, it wasn't a differentiator. Like, no one's ever, like, had a better financial ledger than their competitor and therefore they won. I mean, that's a perfectly good thing to buy. The question is, anything that touches your consumer experience in terms of what you could offer or deliver, I think you'll see more custom there. Um, that obviously favors us, so we probably have rose-colored glasses on about it. Um, but I, I think it's going to happen. I think the world's going to be like, just look at Uber and Airbnb versus all of their competitors, right? Like they're pure software plays in what was traditionally a very capital intensive world of taxis and, and hotels. So, so, I mean, the whole idea of uh, build, you know, building things that differentiate you and then, you know, kind of going out and buying those things that just accelerate you, um, which, so you look at something like even Spring Boot or Pivotal Cloud Foundry and those kind of things. And everybody always, it, there's always a conversation, no matter what you're buying, the comp competitor says, oh, you're locked in, right? So 
Um, what what is that story when you're saying, well, come consume uh, Spring Boot and come consume Cloud Foundry, um, and you know, unlock your business and get that stuff that accelerates you. But when they go, well, but I'm locked in again. I know you're not locked in necessarily to somebody's platform, but is there any other is there any other lock in, or how do you explain to people that that's not really the case? Yeah, I mean, people are very gun shy about lock in because to that web sphere uh, story I told before. Um, so we've really gone out of our way to make Spring Boot independently successful. So one of the things I one of my favorite slides actually, and I don't always use it, but it shows Google doing a how to use Spring Boot on Kubernetes. It shows IBM using how to use Spring Boot on uh, Bluemix. It shows Red Hat, Lord help them, um, doing a how to use Spring Boot, even though they own JBoss. I mean, it's still bad for them. That they, like, can you imagine us being like, here's how to use JBoss? No. Um, and they, they're like, here's how to use Spring Boot on our platforms. Um, and uh, you can go down the line. Like every Oracle even has how to use Spring Boot docs now. So you can actually run this in any platform, but we compete to be the most holistically conceived best place to run that workload. The nice, nice thing about 12-factor is it runs on any – like cloud native is not a proprietary standard. It's, it's much more of a – Well, no, no I, I think it's interesting because in your JPMC deck, you specifically talked about the number of developers for Cloud Foundry being somewhere around 350. And yeah. then the number of developers for Spring was ramping to 500. Oh, it's basically Cloud Foundry plus Spring is about 350 today. We're going to 500. And that, okay. the point of that deck was how do we think about how to use all those people's time? And that's a fair chunk of, fair chunk of high-end engineering. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're talking about cloud native not being a pr proprietary standard, right? So yeah. somebody writes on Spring Boot, they can take it to most people's platforms at this point. Um, what if somebody uh, writes, you know, directly to Cloud Foundry, or you know, decides to leverage the services that are native in your, um, you know, opinionated paths? What what's the conversation there? Is that is that proprietary, or is that still just as easily deployed somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think what we we've, we've done is we've used only industry standards. So our services in Cloud Foundry are things like RabbitMQ, um, HTTP, uh, MySQL. Like these are these are not proprietary. Like we've not built even what you might like. DynamoDB is just a key value store, but it has its own API and its own operational logistics. Cloud Foundry has nothing as as locked in or as as um, cloud specific as DynamoDB. So we we've taken the stance. I just answered this question. Someone said, "Oh, when are you going to build differentiating services like Amazon does?" And I said, "We're not." We're going to use industry standard open source services to deliver our platform. That's our strategy. So as Kafka gets hot, we're building that as a service. As opposed to saying, oh, we're going to give you Kinesis, which is Amazon's proprietary way of doing things and that has a very specific to their platform API. So that's a pretty bold bet by CF, but we've been economically successful, commercially successful so far. Um, and that is very different from him, how Amazon thinks about things, which is they can't wait to lock you in. Like all of Amazon's R and D right now is building highly proprietary APIs that basically you write your code to their API and therefore moving it's in, in, untenable. And you saw the last time Google did a big price cut, Amazon didn't match it, and that shows you a little bit of their cards, right? They've got a twenty percent operating margin, which is two x the S and P average for companies, and they claim to be commodity. So you know we we like Amazon, we use Amazon at the same time. 
there's a little bit of uh, elbows between us and Amazon around should you use all those proprietary services if you don't have to. Yeah, and uh, so so speaking of you know vendor lock in or um, integration with existing platforms, um, talk to us about uh, uh, the integration between Cloud Foundry uh, and VMware. Yeah. <clears throat> So, you know, I came from VMware uh, when I started working on CF, uh, CF. I was kind of recruited internally. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about VMware's uh, Photon product, which I've been tweeting about. Um, and I also try to have drinks uh, in San Francisco once a month with a CTO Cloud Native uh, kit uh, from VMware. And, uh, you know, we announced something called the Photon Bundle last year at VMworld. And the important thing about it is that I'd like to get to a point where you buy one thing, which is, which is you know, essentially one bundle. And you don't need to think about implementing a IaaS layer and a platform container layer. It's just it's everything there. Um, and I'd like to engineer those things all together, kind of, you know, kind of starting now from scratch to make sure they all work well together. Uh, and the reason is, is I think private cloud is is undergoing a crisis right now where a lot of people are comparing current complexity of enterprise old school versus Amazon. And that's an unfair fight. <laughs> but if you get to a point where you have the native hybrid cloud solution from EMC, Photon, and PCF all in one engineered by the rack, stamp it out, and you're looking at Amazon taking a 20% margin, you know, operating margin, you know, so they're obviously a premium product. Um, a lot of customers, I think, would be very interested in just turn it on cloud in a private data center. And I, I actually, so I think what's going to happen in private cloud is going to go through a trough of disillusionment for a little bit where, like, when you try to do it the old school way, it's not going to compare. But I think these engineered solutions uh, that integrate VMware, EMC, and Pivotal all tightly together, I think they're going to have a lot of fans. I still think you'll have the people that are like, we don't want to be in the data center business anymore. That's definitely happening. We also have people that are like, now that we have Cloud Foundry, we don't need public cloud. So I'm seeing both sides of that. So you've mentioned this a couple of times, and it's been it's one of those things that I think probably needs a little bit of explaining for some people, not you, but you could teach it to others. The, the idea of microservices, right? So things when you talk about traditional infrastructures and things like that, these microservices, the Java microservices, whatever they are, in general, what are they doing for businesses, and why are you know why is it so much more valuable than the way we used to do things? Yeah, did you guys see in that deck I made? Uh, there's a slide from uh, Jay Krebs, uh, who's the creator of Kafka at LinkedIn. Uh, no, but yes. I mean I read the deck, but I didn't memorize it. So yeah, I know it's okay. It's uh, I, I try to like tamper the hype around microservices a little bit with that slide from Jay, and it, what it says is computers love monoliths. I did see that. I just didn't know who he was. So yeah, so okay. it, he's really credible because, of course, you know Kafka. I think is one of the more elegantly designed. And I, just as a, a fan, you know, when I read Jay's docs for um, for Kafka online, they're very exquisitely well thought out and how it's all designed, top to bottom. He's he's obviously a great engineer um, and a great architect in terms of how he conceives of the system he's building, um, and. Uh, <clears throat> The point of that is, is that, you know, in a sense, in an ideal world, you would have enough in memory and all one system, all vertically scaled magic to do anything you wanted to do. Like, networks are inherently always the slowest 
and in some sense le least reliable part of a system, right? Like when I, I started my career at Level 3 Networks uh, as an engineer there in the late 90s. And, you know, uh, Jim Crow, who's the CEO at the time, said, hey, there's three parts. You got your memory, you got your CPU, and you got your network. And network's been behind. We're going to catch up anyway. But network's always the, the little iffy part. And so Jay's point is, like, if you just had one system that could run the universe, that's pretty cool as a developer, right? Like, hey, you got infinite memory, infinite CPU, infinite, you know, I.O. That's perfect. So microservices are not a, in, in some sense, a performance optimization, Right. And what Jay later says is microservices are a team-based optimization, which is that if you have one service that's running in one system, you only can have so many humans working on it at once. Like you can only have so many people uh, on, on one piece of the system at once. And microservices are actually in part a contract between teams and how do you get to larger scale of development um, so that when you're trying to do something like Amazon and have thousands of people working on, on one system, the Amazon you know, compute, you have broken everything down into services that have clear contracts between them. So I, I like to preface the microservice discussion as this is not some sort of whiz-bang computer science, a better way of writing code so it executes better. This is a human optimization to allow teams to collaborate and those services contracts are around allowing you to scale your team. That's a, that's a long answer, but I, it's important to me not to be like, microservices are the only way of writing code that's good, right? Like it's, it's a more nuanced conversation than that. Um. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's anytime you say only you're usually wrong anyways. Right. So, yeah. You, so, um, and to that end, when we, I just had this argument this morning with somebody who's uh, wicked smart in Linux and I was shocked because he was like, I still don't get this containers thing. Like what's the value of it? Because you know, like why not just do this or that? So, um, you know, I know the, 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 the core of Cloud Foundry has been somewhat shifted and is really, you know, heavily leveraging containers in a, in a, in a different way now um, with Diego and things like that. But what is this container story from the cloud native perspective and from your from Pivotal's perspective? And why is it, you know, why is it so hot right now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, there's a slide in there, again, first principles. We believe in using containers for things that need speed. Um, certainly, app lifecycle is a great example of something where you want speed. I, I want to do a deployment of code. I want to rapidly switch it over. I want it to start in seconds, right? Lambda is the ultimate kind of expression of pure speed. Um, just deploy a function and away you go. And, you know, CF elastic runtime is kind of really pretty close to that. It's not quite serverless, but it's close to it. Like, here's my code. Just go run it for me. Um, the opposite of, and that's where we use containers is things we want to do fast, things we want to do really efficiently, um, things that we want almost zero cost of operations to change. Uh, we still use VMs in Cloud Foundry with a system called Bosch, and that's where we manage our data services. So when you're building a Galera cluster or a Cassandra ring, if you imagine just taking a Cassandra cluster and dumping that into the middle of just a random scheduler, <laughs> right? Like, hey, I got a bunch of apps running, and I'm just going to randomly put something that uses 100% of available I.O. <laughs> into a couple of random nodes. Like, that might not go so well. And uh, if you randomly reschedule Cassandra, it's going to I.O. storm as it resyncs across the, 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 the ring. So these are not things that you want to rapidly, arbitrarily deploy, unlike app, app containers. And so there we use a very methodical uh, infrastructure API virtual machine layer in Bosch to schedule. So containers are very useful for 
you know, rapid app lifecycle changes. The other thing that's made containers hot, though, is that it was really much more expensive to set up complex environments on developers' desktops before. And I call the container revolution a little bit of a desktop one, you know, other than the efficiency that I've outlined for lifecycle and speed. If you're a developer and you're like, hey, I can grab a Redis Docker, I can grab a, a RabbitMQ Docker, and I can grab a Go Docker and Go, that's pretty exciting. So I think a lot of the heat came from the laptop environment um, as well. Um, but I think we're in, a, we're in a growing phase there where at Cloud Foundry we've methodically chosen the right tech tool for the right, for the right purpose. And there's other people in the market that are like, we're just all in a containers, God help us, whatever happens. And I don't know if you saw the downfall parody video that came out the other day. Um, no. Definitely check it out. And all the stuff I've been saying for years about you know misusing containers around, oh, I just randomly started a database on an app node and it used all of the resources um, is exactly what they're parodying the unsuccessful deployment of with just containers. So you have to be thoughtful about it. And I think it's in a bit of a it can solve everything the same way hype curve right now. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, watching, um, and, and I'll probably be Butcher's name, but uh, Onzi, Onzi? Onzi. Yeah, Onzi. So in his uh, his Cloud Foundry Summit um, presentation, he he kept taping on these, these, these Docker containers onto the servers and the ones that are on fire, and everyone is just kind of laughing in the crowd. But um, anyway, uh, that's an awesome video, by the way. It's 30 minutes. It's The haikus are phenomenal, but... Dude, if you want to know anything about Cloud Foundry from just kind of a basic understanding, go look up. Say his name for me, James, because I'll mess it up. Ansi Farakari. Yep, it's easy and, for you to say. Yeah, absolutely, it's on <laughs> YouTube. Hundred times. It's pretty awesome. Um, so, kind of along the same vein, so we talked about microservices and and you know kind of evolutions. You wrote a blog post recently: the top five digital transformation and cloud native themes. For 2016. Now you don't have to remember them. Um, I'll, I'll lay them out for you. <laughs> but um, the first one was Year of the Leapfrog. So what does that mean for 2016? Yeah. So the, those those trends are kind of just on theme with uh, with 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 where we've been going. Um, let me get that one back up. So is that the problem when you're verbose is that you write things? Maybe maybe you should have wrote that on Twitter instead of on a blog post. Well, you know, I think they, <laughs> they, they used my name. They had a conversation with me and then... Uh, we know how. As somebody who used to be technical and now works in, uh, in marketing, I know exactly what happened there. So that's okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think the... the let, me, let me get it out one second. Give me a second. That's what... Um, so as you, as you pull that up and you're thinking, you know, they, it's, it's interesting to see, um, a lot of the things that you're talking about here are really, I mean, it's all central to everybody's arguments these days. Is there, is there really when there, you know, we talked about containers, we talked about cloud native, we talked about all these different things. Is there something we're missing? That's like the new hot thing that we're, that seem is going to even change this even further that we're not really mentioning today because it feels like it's all the same things over and over. Um, you know, is there is there another shift that you're you predicted on Twitter last week with your beer buddies? <laughs> I, I, let's let's have a little debate about this. I've got this little speech I've been working on lately, which is that no one will ever win generic automation. So I'd love to have a debate with you guys about that one. Tell me what that means first, because I'm not smart enough to get it by myself. <clears throat> well, generic op, 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 automation is 
is uh, frameworks for expressing configuration changes that don't have any idea what the primitives really are or limit your primitives. So, you know, a, a good example of this would be Chef or Puppet or CF Engine or Ansible or Salt. Um, and uh, I've got this slide in that deck I call the value line. And uh, one of the things I do is I say below the value line, there's some generic automation technology. We happen to use Bosch. We think it's great. You've proven it at scale, therefore you should use it. But there's no one that will ever win generic automation. And the argument I use is that first it was CF Engine, and then it was Puppet, and then it was Chef, and then it was Salt, and then it was Ansible, and then it was Heat, and then it was CloudFormation, and then it was Blade Logic, and then it was vRealize. And I can keep listing these things out, right? And I say that essentially, if you're trying to do automation without limitation, that's mostly, that's just dialects of configuration. Like, you're not going to win. And I, I say, you know, in a sense, like in India, there's 2,000 dialects of Hindi. And even in the United States, if you're in Boston, you say, oh, that's wicked. And if you're in San Francisco, you go, hella. And what I try to tell people is the difference between Chef and Puppet and Ansible and Salt is closer to wicked versus hella than it is a fundamental difference and that they're really competing on dialects. And it's great as I get management going, holy cow, my team convinced me that that one thing is going to win. And my theory is that none of them have ever won because they don't have any limitations. They're closer to just kind of uh, dialects than they are to products. And so, so the, it, and then the other part of it is that they're um, they're constantly trying to expand their their reach in order to continue to you know dr you know drive the business. So they start to get less and less uh, opinionated and kind of they just start to do everything. And all of a sudden, they're your entire stack manager and chef's going to be a paz next week. Well, well, that's the thing, right? And they and that then they don't enforce limitations, right? Like if if you believe in like the cloud native idea. Um, you believe in limitations. And like, if you look at how Netflix works, they might have had some basic automation tools to help you, but mostly they had a core set of AMIs that you put your code on, put behind a load balancer and attached to Cassandra. Like you weren't coming in at Netflix and just, oh, I'm going to stitch together some random monster with configuration management. Um, and a lot of enterprises came at this and they said, oh, I've got a monster, therefore my solution is configuration management. And I think the way the war ends is like, no, don't have a monster. <laughs> have something that's a bit more focused and therefore can be, you know, I guess better run maybe? Well, designed to be operated. Okay. And I, I think that's the, that's the difference. The software is becoming so important that it now needs to be designed to be operated um, versus magical IT catching anything that, that dev throws over the wall. So what, what I hear you say as the layman um, who, you know, trying to bring it down to the two-foot level um, is that essentially these things are being commoditized because they're all so similar. Um, so, and it's pretty hard to win a commodity war, right? You just become like a piece part and therefore there's no value in what you do because you're so similar and there's something you could just replace it tomorrow with a new language. You know, if you learned a couple of different ways to say things, you're doing the exact same thing with a new product. Yep. Um, and so that comes back to that whole buy, you know, you know, buy the thing that just does what you need it to do and then build on top of it, the differentiation to your business. Um, but that's further up the stack in, in, in this conversation, meaning um, the automation is kind of just a thing that happens and everybody's doing it pretty well these days. There's things further up the stack that need to be solved at this point. This is what it sounds like you're saying. 
Yeah, and a platform will help you with limitations and will will deliver scalable primitives versus arbitrary primitives. And that that's really the argument here is that you want scalable primitives, not arbitrary primitives. So are you also saying that opinionated well, opinionated things need to be all the way through the stack and not just kind of at the top? Otherwise, there's other issues down below. If something's unopinionated and kind of loose at the bottom, but you have guardrails up the top, is there problems with the full stack at that point? I mean, I think as, as the world shifts to higher, I mean, the history of computers is always higher and higher abstractions, right? Like, it's just inevitable. And I, I think what's happening with platforms like CF um, and frameworks like Spring Boot is we're just raising the waterline. And so five years ago, it might have made sense to try to build your own platform. And now, why wouldn't you just consume that? And, you know, and then the proof is, as I said, that moment where you get to 2,000 apps in production and it doesn't cost you much to run them. And you go, oh, wow, that's very different than you know, custom configuration. So that's, that's, I think, the future. And so in terms of what's hot and what's new, I would say look for things that are scalable primitives. And I'll, I'll come back to that little comment I made about Kafka. It's been hot because Jay designed it with very specific limitations. Um, and I look at it as a scalable primitive that's being important in the market for some of the same reasons that Cloud Foundry and Spring Boot are, are, are doing the same. Yeah, well, when you talk to Jay, let him know we're on our way because he's going to have to get on here and teach us what Kafka is. Great. So um, I do have one more question for you as we talk about futures and you talk about things and you shift and things like that. Um, last week we were speaking with somebody and they were mentioning these new server farms that are based on um, essentially GPUs as well as CPUs, as well as ASICs, as well as FGPAs, and they're uh, especially in high performance compute. And as the hardware industry shifts and we get these things like uh, Diablo and Crystal Ridge from Intel and all these kind of things, and this everything's shifting towards in memory and even further out as far as the variety of CPU. Um, I actually just saw a Northrop Grumman ad for their CPUs. Uh, which I thought was like, I can't believe they're advertising on television for that. Um, so is there a shift in the way these application stacks and the abstraction as this hardware starts to really vary and, and really change the way it doesn't seem as traditional as it used to be? Well, I think Intel has an interesting, interesting next 10 years because there's a new kind of workload that operates at such a scale you can start to imagine doing something specialized for it. And Intel has always been the king of generic, right? Um, <clears throat> general purpose. I I'm sure that there's lots of reasons to use um, my old boss that I used to work with at Sun that we did large scale HPC deployments with. Actually, is at Nvidia now doing pure GPU style clusters. Um, I'm not as much of an expert on it, and a lot of the case, you know, the, the work that we're on is more about the 80 percent. What, what our platform does is it takes what's already been what is now generic and should be abstracted and helps you do that. And then there is kind of the cool 20% that's happening beyond us that you'd never do on our platform, right? But that's sort of our job is to take what should be industry standard and abstract it. And we're sort of just as interested in watching the change out in front of these very specialized cloud, you know, cloud workloads, et cetera, and server farms. Um, but that's not as much of where we spend our day-to-day -day time. We're, we're more helping people um, with, with the more generic compute. And so we're, we're still very much aligned with what's, what's happening in that space. Um, but it, it's certainly fascinating to watch. Like You think about the cost of machine learning um, and uh, the, the cost of those, uh, the hardware to do that. The guy that built his own self-driving car in California, it was because the hardware kit that he had to do 
the, the machine learning had come down so far in cost and it wasn't traditional Intel. So those are places you're like, holy cow, like the, this is this change of economics now is allowing, you know, a, a one person to build a self-driving car. That's incredible. Uh, so it's, it's certainly interesting, but I'm more of a like interested spectator there than I am an active participant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's kind of scary, but I, I'd be curious to follow that project a bit more. Yeah. Uh, so James, uh, we're we're kind of out of time. I know you've got a busy schedule, so we want to be uh, cognizant of that. So, um, when and where can we find you next? You talked about being at EMC World. Do you have any keynotes? Uh, are you doing any sessions? Where can we find you? Yeah, I'm doing a short ten minute keynote at EMC World. Love recommendations on content. Uh, be good to grab a beer when I'm there. Um, and uh, I tend to spend my time giving a lot of talks uh, to big companies these days internally. Like that's why I shared that deck, um, less conference circuit, uh, because we're a very hands-on uh, uh, kind of shop. You know, we're, we kind of partner with our customers in these transformations. Uh, so the next time, I'll, next one is EMC World, and you can always find me on Twitter. So heckle me or uh, throw me any suggestions anytime. Yeah, what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, Waters James with two T's and Waters. Right on. And then you're on GitHub and you've got about looks like ten or twenty or thirty blogs with all kind of distributed content from two thousand and twelve and fifteen and fourteen. I need to blog more. It's probably my biggest weakness right now is but when I write a blog, like I sit down and write it for about five days straight and I just haven't had the time to enjoy that kind of dedication lately. Right on. And uh, we always like to give recommendations on any books or websites that uh, you're reading right now. They don't have to pertain to the industry, but if they do, great. Uh, but how are you staying kind of abreast of what's going on and you know, keeping yourself busy and, uh, with, with reading? Yeah, you know, uh, go read the docs behind Kafka. That's definitely something I've already said. But just, just go look at how they designed Kafka. Go read everything Jay's ever written about Kafka and think about uh, scalable primitives. That's a good one. And I also uh, have enjoyed some of the podcasts on Software Engineering Daily. So it is a uh, fire hose and lots of content. But if you're interested in more of like the database design, they have a lot of great database engineers on there that, that, talk, that talk through uh, how they've done things. So those are two things I've been enjoying lately. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for the recommendation. So uh, as James said, you know, get social with him, but also get social with us. Uh, we want to hear how we're doing. We want to hear what you want to hear next. Uh, the, the landscape is always changing and uh, we can't stay on top of everything. So if there's something you heard, something you want to know more about, let us know. Brian and I are both on Twitter. But uh, that being said, let's close out the hot aisle for today. Um, with that, my name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And James, thanks for being on today. Yeah, great to be on, guys. Thanks.